Good morning. My name is Mackenzie Houston. Today we'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 17, which can be found on page 992 in the Pew Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 17. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithfully, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, everyone. Hey, again, if we haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, glad that you're with us. He indulged me two quick commercials. Um, I know there's like two kinds of people. There are those who look at their phone when it gives a, a directions to a place, and you just start driving going. We've been in a series on gender and sexuality. This is the last week of that. Next week, we start a series on the church that we're calling the structure and servants of the church. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, just asking, man, what is the purpose of the church? And then as we, in a particular way, try to ask, how do we settle as a people? How do we add spiritual leadership to our church? How do we think about men and women leading and serving together? We just wanted to do some conversations from the pulpit, as well as some members meetings and some Q&As. So that's where we're going next week. So a couple of things to confuse you. This one that's light blue that says designed uh, to flourish. This is the reading guide for the series that we're in right now. This might be your very first week, and so we're on week four. If what we talk about today um, you want to learn more about, you want to discuss more, this reading guide I think will be helpful. It's full of passages that are relevant to where we've been. There's lots of online resources on there with a QR code as well as some books that we recommend. So I want to kind of continue the conversation with that. But this one will come off the website this evening, and this other one will go up. This has um, some references as well to those things, but we're going to do this one a little bit differently. 
What I would love for you to do is simply read over the shoulder of the church in Corinth. Corinth is a first century church. These are some of the first responders to Jesus. They're figuring out what it looks like to apprentice and follow him. And a lot of their questions are our questions. We'll look at a couple of specific passages as we preach, but I just thought it would be helpful for you just to track with this church and hear uh, the mess that it is, the beauty that it is. There's division and brokenness and all kinds of sin and dysfunction, as well as a ton of hope. And into that space, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks to these new believers about what the church is supposed to be and how we think about living with one another. So if you could just read like a chapter a day, it's actually 16 chapters, so you'll see a reading guide there that will kind of help you navigate that in three weeks. And then I just put in there just relevant other passages that I think would serve you when it comes to the topics that we're going to be preaching on. I thought it would be strange just for your quiet time if you read about like, you know, uh, leadership in the church. It may not be super edifying for your like your next work day. So I want you to read Corinthians and then you have these as references. You can just navigate those throughout the week. You'll see on there some documents as well that will give some more clarity. So I'll tell you more about that next week, but uh, I want you to go ahead and start this little reading guide. So man, if this is your first time with us, this will be kind of fun if you just want to come for three weeks and you're wondering what the heck is church? What are Christians trying to do? Why do they gather? I think you would find this series pretty helpful as we think about what it means to follow Jesus as a people as a body. So that's kind of where we're, where we're heading. And then for those of you who like to even know more, after the service today, we have a vision meeting. It'll meet just down in the fellowship hall. So if you go out the doors here and take a right and grab your kids downstairs, there'll be some light snacks. It's about a 20 or 30 minute meeting. I know there's a noon Chiefs game, so we will hustle to get through there. But we'd love to answer your questions and get to meet you just a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do as a people. So those are my commercials. All right, hey, let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Jesus, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you that we don't have to recognize it. We don't have to be able to point to your mercy and grace for it to be real and substantial. There are so many ways that you're working in our lives and hearts that um, we may not even be aware of. The breath in our lungs, uh, the beating of our heart, which I know uh, is something that's fragile. All of that you hold and, and you are doing us good even to draw us to yourself. So this morning in a broad room with different experiences and pains and desires and understanding of your word, would you work and do us good by your mercy and grace to draw us to yourself? So uh, we want to submit to you. We want to understand you. We want to follow you. And I know there are folks who have questions about how you shape or fit or are relevant to their sexuality, their understanding of what it means to be a man or a woman. Uh, so God, would you, would you speak in uh, compassionate and really clear ways this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And then well, hey, around the idea of gender and sexuality, I think it's fair to say there's just a lot of fear. And fear makes us do fairly crazy things. Everybody's motivated by fear in some ways. And I think in this conversation, regardless of your background or history, there's a lot of fears, Christian and non-Christian. I just tried to think through a couple of them. Some of you are afraid that if you were to follow Jesus' commands, you'll be lonely. Some of you are afraid that if you were to come out and share your struggle or your thoughts with your parents or with your church, they wouldn't understand you, they would judge you, they might minimize or oversimplify what you're feeling. Some of you are afraid to tell your spouse what really happens in the shadows uh, that you're wondering, like, the marriage will be over, will they, will they reject? You're afraid of losing your children in a politicized, culturally charged conversation. You're afraid that if you follow God's sexual ethics, maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend would break up if you stopped giving them your body as a way to trade relationship. You're afraid at work if you don't follow protocols. 
You're afraid at school, wondering what would happen if you were to resist something. We'd be ostracized as a middle school or high school kid. You're wondering what would be called homophobic or transphobic or bigoted if you, if you were to ask questions or, or raise some concerns. You're afraid, too, that the warnings in the Scripture are real. They talk about the soul-damaging nature of sin. So most of you carry a fear of, like, what is this doing inside of our brothers and sisters, inside of myself even? You're afraid that we can't really actually know what the Bible says. You're afraid that the church is going to harm people with simplistic answers and not listen or be compassionate and just clobber people with a handful of prohibitions. You're afraid that God may not be big enough to handle what you're dealing with. I think at the core, too, there's this fear of harming people. I think most people are motivated by a desire not to harm. So those who are, find themselves in a more accommodating space to the trends of our culture are saying, man, can we just dignify people? Can we just use their pronouns? Can we go along with things? These are real people. They have real questions. Can we not harm them? And then there are those of you who come at it from a different perspective with the exact same desire not to harm. And you feel like, man, if I wasn't to speak truth, if I was to go along with the culture and the culture wasn't in a healthy space, that would do harm. I want to just name all of that because I think all of us can come to a passage like this just acknowledging the fears that we have. And I, I'm trying to name kind of wherever you are, maybe some of the fears you feel as we've been talking through this for a couple of weeks. Or maybe, again, this is your first time and you're wondering, gosh, what do we do with a text like this? What I love about this passage is it gives us a hopeful framework to step into that fear. You may have never heard these words before, but, but in it what Paul does is he's giving instruction to early Christians is he kind of runs the gamut of calling things broken and dysfunctional, warning us of false ideas that would harm us, but he moves it in a space that's rooted in grace and his own understanding of his need. There's a ton of humility in there. He names a bucket of dysfunction and sin and brokenness so that all of us are on the hook in the same space so no one stands outside this text which is really good news we all come at it together as needy and there's a lot of hope and solution in this as he talks about the gospel of Jesus and what Christ came to do to actually rescue and redeem and it puts us in a space where it ends us in verse 17 with a whole lot of hope fear makes us do crazy things and it pushes us into that fight or flight sort of mode and from that space, it's really hard to give dignity to somebody else. Just think about when your adrenaline's pumping and you're nervous, you rarely make great decisions in that space, especially if the person across the table from you is the one who's inciting that anxiety or that fear. And we talked a couple of weeks in Genesis chapter 3 when, when God's people listen to lies and they think they'll be flourishing outside of his commands. They take this fruit from this tree. It doesn't bring flourishing. Instead, they're terrified. It says that they're afraid, so they go and hide. And as they hide, they blame when they live in shame and in, in this fear that marks them. And the same God that came after them in the garden comes for you this morning in all of your fears. The light of Christ wants to shine into the spaces of your fears. And yes, it is a searing light. It's a warming light, a nourishing light, a sanitizing light, but it is a searing light to help us understand what's actually happening inside of us. So, so the God who came after them in the garden wants to speak to us this morning by his light so that we could actually step towards these things. So I want to walk through the text as fast as we can. And I realize, man, I'm preaching like three sermons per sermon. Last week was pretty full, I know. This is probably not going to be a whole lot better, but let me just give you five like kind of signposts. 
We're just going to walk directly through the text. So if you can't grab a hold of these, you'll see them in the passage. But what we're going to see is that competing ideas, God's view of flourishing and the world's view of flourishing, those have consequences. That's the first thing we'll see. And then God gives us a framework of flourishing. There's a second thing I want to see. There's a framework of flourishing. And then he grounds everything in the gospel good news. He grounds our hope not in our behavior or in our effort or us being right or our traditions, but in what Jesus has done for us, which is code for the gospel. There's a call to display dignity in verse 16, and then he bases our hope on the bigness of God. So competing ideas have consequences. There's a framework for flourishing in this space. It's a groundwork for gospel good news, a call to display or show dignity to the world, and then a place to rest our hope on the bigness of God. So look with me in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's on page 991 if you're in that pew Bible. And I would encourage you to just pull that up if you're at home. Go ahead and grab a Bible. We'd love for you to see these words as we walk through them. But, but here, the, the idea here, the competing ideas about what would lead to flourishing have consequences. And he's going to call it false teaching. And it gets us to the idea that our ideas don't just stay as ideas. They, they have consequences in our life. So listen to this. It says, I urged you when I was with you in Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, Ephesus so that you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. We'll just stop for a second. He says, hey, there is a doctrine, there's a teaching that's historic that God has given us. And there's a temptation always to upgrade that, to revamp that, to modernize that, to, to bring something to that. And people come and they bring myths, he says. And this phrase even, endless genealogies, is interesting, but it would speak of like origins, like where we came from, what is our story. There are so many competing ideas about how we got to where we are, which translate to what we need with where we are. So to talk about myths of how we got here and origin stories and to promote speculations, to guess about human nature, to think through philosophies and ideas, that actually what's fascinating is there are things that we believe <coughs> that the, the professionals, the philosophers, the scholars no longer hold, but it trickles down for generations. So there are things that Freud believed that shaped a generation that have wildly been debunked and no one really holds to it unless you're at the popular street level where most of us live. So he's naming, hey, there's just like ways of thinking about the world. There's speculations. If you move God from this, the picture there, then you, you wonder how do we move forward? And he says, these ideas, they have consequences. It says the aim of our charge is love. The reason why God's giving this to us is not to hold us back. Jesus didn't just come to like take away your sexual experiences. He came to actually love you from, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But certain persons have swerved from these teachings. It has movement. Catch this. They've swerved from these and they've wandered away into vain discussion. Moving away from the idea that we have an origin story coming from a creator who says of your body and your identity, good. Says of your masculinity and your femininity, good. Says exactly the way he made you, good. But if you remove that as a foundation of how you see yourself, there's this wobbling, this swerving, this wandering, and it moves us into vain 
spaces. And catch verse 7. He says, there are people who desire to be teachers of the law, talking about the Bible, but they don't actually understand either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Hello, YouTube, Instagram, all the stuff. Christian, non-Christian, right? There's all kinds of crazy voices out there. People asserting themselves and the internet has given a microphone to everyone. And in that space, you have people who don't understand like human nature, don't understand where we come from, don't understand not just God's teaching, but the essence of humanity and ontology who are drafting ideas that actually have massive consequences. First Peter chapter 2, he says, these, these things come at us and they wage war against our soul. They're not simply ideas I want you to see. These false teachings that Paul says Timothy is supposed to stand against actually have a framework that, that harm. There's lies that you have to define yourself. No one can tell you who you are except for you. But the fallacy of that, of course, is that everyone's telling you about who you are and you're picking and doing a patchwork and a Frankenstein matrix of all those things. That There are just simple like stereotypes put in front of us as this is what it is to be a man or a woman that, that are a lie. There, there's a lie that if you don't feel settled in your body that you should change your body. So think about puberty and think about nobody liking actually who they are in the spaces of those transitions and changes. Rather than talking about you know, indwelling sin and brokenness and struggle, there's a lie that says, well, man, if you feel uncomfortable, you should change that. They just go all over the place in lots of spaces, and I, we've tried to talk about a lot of them. There's things even a lie that the parts of the Old Testament don't apply anymore. There are clear commands about the moral nature of God that we no longer have to hold to, which we talked about last week. Or, or the New Testament's not actually dealing with what we're dealing with. These are distortions and lies, and they, they push us into spaces where there's all kinds of pain and confusion. Just the competing ideas have movement and they shape is where he starts. Therefore, push against those, he says. And I don't want to be like too simplistic, right? They're all mixed up. There's lots of things coming together. It's not just social contagion. It's not just kind of new philosophies. It's not just things in your body. It's not just your family of origin. It's not just our culture. It's not just media. It's not just one thing. It's lots of things that come together. But, but God gives us a framework to understand our brokenness and his redemption. And when you push away from that, Looking for some other way, you find the swerving and wandering. There, there's a warning there. And Jesus models for us in Matthew 7 how to say something is out of bounds without being arrogant or rude. He says that we shouldn't judge one another and you should deal with the log that's in your own eye first. And then he says there's false teachers that you should judge. And he calls certain people dogs and pigs because of the harm they're doing to those around them. So there's a way to not be judgmental and say, I think that idea is not rooted in something whole or sound that will lead towards flourishing. That's where he goes in those first couple of verses. So the ideas that we're dealing with, just so you know, are not simply ideas. Your ideas shape your affections and your affections drive what you do. And this text just gives us this beautiful description and far from like stewarding what God has given us he says they're promoting speculations people are risking and rolling the dice on things that have lots of consequences rather than stewarding the world that God has given us the bodies God has given us the word that God has given us asking how do I live into these there's a speculation of what if there's another sort of way so so there's ideas and uh, that have consequences 
in, in the world around us. Drop down to verse 8 for the second point here. He says, though, God has given us a, a framework of flourishing. You may disagree with this verse in verse 8, but he says, Now we know that the law is good. The reason why we had you reading Psalm 119 through this series is just so you could hear how beautiful and good and rich is the word of God. We looked last week at some of those passages and we talked about the fact that Jesus came to fulfill the law. And of course, he fulfilled different kinds of laws in different sorts of ways. So the ceremonial and civil and sacrificial laws, he he fulfilled differently than, than the moral law. But Paul just starts here and says, hey, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this is the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who, and he names some, some references to the Ten Commandments here, those who strike their fathers and mothers, honor your mother and father, murderers, thou shalt not murder, sexual immorality and men who practice homosexuality, don't commit adultery, enslavers, don't steal, liars, don't lie, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It says in this space there's a, a way that people start to live in, in contrast to God's plan for flourishing. And he says the law is good because it shows us what God is like and what it means for us to live into those things. This whole idea here of understanding the law is laid down not for the just but for the lawless. The scriptures say that's all of us. And Paul's going to go down. You heard him say it. Hey, I am the worst of sinners. I am the utmost sinner. So he puts himself in a space saying, of the lawless ones, that's me. He's not saying the law is only good for those people. All of us are those people. And God gave us his word so that we would see our need for him in ways that we can actually move towards him for help. There's this phrase in here of sound doctrine. It's a word of like health and wholeness. There's teachings contrary to health and wholeness, which we're seeing the fruits of in the world all around us. I mean, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you think the Bible is crazy. You have to admit kind of the anxious, troubled nature of our world. In the space where we engage with something that's not actually healthy or sound, it seems like the thing is fraying at the edges and falling apart. So, so Paul says that there's a framework God's given us to help us to lead towards flourishing. And what I want you to see in these lists here is a reference to the Old Testament. I try to name there. He's quoting Exodus 20. He's pulling up the Big Ten in those spaces which say to us, these are laws that are to last. This is the heart of God. They're quoted all over the New Testament and the Old Testament. So, so they have this staying power to them. And they're, they're actions. They're things that you do. There's a huge debate in this whole conversation about identity versus action. And we labored a little bit last week. Even this phrase here, we see it again when it comes to verse 10. of This men who practice homosexuality. It's the translator's attempt to translate actually one word that's a compound word from the Old Testament in the Levitical law, chapter 18 and 20. It's men who lie with other men. But it's an action. It's not a desire or a feeling or an attraction or an orientation. All of us, our orientation is bent away from God. This list is actionable. So the way the Bible talks is it's not that we have like this neutralness to us. Our hearts are actually desperately broken. And then God calls us to submit our desires to him in ways that we don't actually act upon them, but see them transformed and redeemed. So there's been this debate, right? In the Bible, can you have orientation versus an action? And I think if you just go greed, 
and heterosexual lust and fear and pride, doesn't it translate there? You would have a desire, a distortion, a brokenness, an inclination that you feel and are tempted by, but it's when you act upon it, either in your heart and mind to fantasize or actually with your body, that you cross over the line. Jesus was tempted in every way, the scriptures say. So to being tempted isn't the issue. It's what you do with it. I just want you to see in that space the action nature of that. God's after your hearts to transform it from the inside out to actually help us move towards wholeness and flourishing. And he names actions that would disintegrate that, to push against your mother and father, actually to strike them. What a strong word. This idea of murder, which we looked at in Matthew 5 last week, is not just killing somebody, but actually hating or being prejudiced or harming or insulting them. Sexual sin, how we deal with honesty, how we take things that aren't ours. Even this idea of like all the way down to idolatry of covetousness is where the Ten Commandments would end and land. Those things actually break the world and they don't bring us to flourishing. So, so what do you do with a list like that when you see a disparate list and every time you see a conversation about sexual sin, particularly about, about same-sex sex, and I, I got tripped up last week because I'm trying so hard not just to use the word homosexual or gay because those words get used in lots and lots and lots of different ways. So I'm trying to just like awkwardly say same-sex sex to talk about the action of acting on that desire. What do you do when you see that in the list of all these other things? Try to name for you a couple of things. One is a deep humility to put yourself at the feet of Jesus as one who is needy and broken, who knows they are the chief of sinners, which is where Paul will go. That your brokenness is no better or worse than someone else's brokenness. This list like this, to throw it all in one bucket, brings about a humility. But it also brings about a clarity to actually call it a brokenness, to call it a sin, to call the action of acting on our brokenness sin. The brokenness we just kind of inherit and we have inside of us, it's the acting on it that is the thing that actually this list is aimed at. So, so we have an opportunity to be clear. The Bible does call things out of bounds. And every time you see same-sex sex listed in the New Testament, it's always in a bundle of terms. It's always surrounded by other things to kind of put us all in the same space. But there's a clarity about it and Every single one of those passages has a space of hope and grace. He's going to talk about the gospel of Jesus and him being transformed. It's the same in Romans 1 and the same in 1 Corinthians 6. You see in that list, there's this humility and this clarity and then this hopefulness. That we're not just bound to stay in these spaces. The gospel of Jesus comes to transform and change. Not in simplistic ways. And again, with the idea of indwelling sin, not in ways that we'll feel in this life are fully complete, but our union with Christ is the goal. And in that space, God is transforming in substantial ways, even if it is incremental. So the promise of new life in Christ is not that everything you struggle with automatically disintegrates and goes away. It's that God walks with you in ways to help bring power and goodness and help. And His Spirit comes inside of you. Which is fascinating to think about the way our sin pushes us towards shame. Whatever it is you're dealing with, right? Put yourself on the liar, the perjurer, the adultery, the homosexual offender, the whole, whole thing. Put yourself wherever you want to put yourself. And the shame and the dirtiness and the brokenness that you feel. That you can cover with work or money or booze or porn or 
popularity or achievement. You can cover it with lots of stuff, but in the day you lay your head on your pillow and you feel there's something about you that's not quite right. What a fascinating thing that God himself, the scriptures say, comes inside of you by his spirit. Far from saying dirty and unlovable and on the outside, the grace that a list like this has says God moves into where you are to welcome you to himself. And he couldn't be closer to you. All of us are afraid when we're afraid we go into hiding. And the grace of God shines a light in that space to draw out of us something beautiful so that we can actually be redeemed and believe the good news of the gospel that that your actions don't define you, that your past doesn't define you. That the things you've struggled with, the confusion you have, the places where you've been. And let's just like step off the sexual sin for a moment. Let's just go to those other spaces. Let's just say you're an angry, mean, bigoted person who judges people. Let's say your stain is self-righteousness and religiosity. And you look at people with such disdain because you can't understand their struggle. Let's just put you in that camp. And to that shame. To that space of like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't severed that relationship. I wish I wasn't so forceful when that person was hurting and I made it about me instead of about them. In that space, there is grace as well. The grace of Jesus is broad and so to blunt these things all in these categories puts all of us in this space where we need grace and we can have grace. Which brings us to this next section in verse 11. It's the grounding all of this in gospel good news. If we understand the indwelling power of sin, that we carry the stain inside of us, what Paul says on the heels of this long list in verse 11 is that God has come with the good news of the gospel. He says there are people who live contrary to sound doctrine, but in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And then he just says the gospel. He tells his story. I thank him who was given to me, uh, who gave me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. Here, shame, 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 failure, 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 brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, a, a brand new identity, a brand new orientation, a brand new way of living, a brand new life that God comes to provide for us. Not erasing our brokenness, but beginning to redeem it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Catch this, please. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I know we always are exchanging resumes. We're always posturing and competing with one another. We're always trying to figure out where we sit. We never leave the middle school lunchroom, kind of even as adults. We're always wondering where we fit. Hear this good news. This dude outsends all of you. Public, blown up, big, big time stuff. And he says, okay, if that's true of me, the logic is could you find your brokenness? Could you find your need? Could you find the places where you would say, yes, that's sin inside of me? And there's hope for Paul, this one who was a blasphemer, which that's a big deal, by the way. That's a massive deal. Persecuting the church, an insolent opponent of God, which the Bible says all of us in our sin 
have become enemies of God. Maybe Paul's a capital E enemy. Maybe you're a lowercase e enemy. But in this space, he's saying, here's the great news. This is something you got to repeat. This is worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not to get them to stop doing stuff with their bodies that he thought was gross. Or to act better in public. Or to treat people nicer. He came to save and rescue and redeem and heal his people that had fallen away from him and sinned against him. There's a gospel good news in this passage that is our hope for all the questions and the confusion that we have. When we wonder, like, what do I do? The gospel gives an answer to that. To see the humility and the new identity. Uh, Scripture says that if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And again, that doesn't mean you never struggle again, but it means God has given you an identity no longer blasphemer, no longer insolent, but now daughter of God and son of God. And from a rested identity, now you can move towards who God is and what he calls you to. And there's a call in this to put your whole identity in Jesus. It's actually something Jesus says requires all of your life. He says, you cannot be my disciple if you won't die to yourself. You can't hold on to part of the old way that has this fragmented brokenness and rebellion and say that you're going to actually move towards God. It would be like choosing your high school sweetheart and marrying somebody else and trying to do both. That happens, but we would say that's broken. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's infidelity. And so when we try to hold on to the old life that we had and cling to the new life as well, it's taking on two separate lovers. And Jesus says, I'm a jealous God. I won't share. You can't serve two masters. And so he calls us into a space of holiness. And Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple unless you fully die to yourself. And that means submitting all of your desires, economically, relationally, your future, your past, all the stuff that you're afraid of, the things you have as desires in your body to submit all of that. One of my hopes in the next 10 years is that we become a people that live into Jesus' call to actually die to themselves in every area of their life. Then it wouldn't seem so strange when we called one subset of people to lay down their desires and say, hey, I know you have that. Don't act on that. To say to simply someone in a sexual minority, hey, don't act on that. We're sorry, you can't do that. If our whole community was regularly saying, I've got all kinds of desires that I'm submitting to Jesus, that call to chastity and wholeness wouldn't seem strange. And sadly, I understand it seems strange now to most people in our culture because the church is so inconsistent in its call to holiness. So why does greed get a free pass? Why do heterosexual sins get a wink at them? Why does stuff with pride and jealousy and envy and gossip, these things that are all named in the list that we've seen throughout the Old Testament, why do those get winked at? Because we're broken and we're wrong. There's a call actually to put our whole identity in Jesus, to rest everything we have, call all of our lives into submission to Jesus as the one who brings about our life. Friends, it's a 10-year project, maybe two, five, I don't know. I want us to be a people that take Jesus' words, not seriously, but essentially. It would be offensive to say, take them serious. No, you cannot be his disciple unless you die to yourself, he says. And when you're like, well, except for this area. 
You cannot be his disciple unless you die to yourself. And what a different kind of people we would be if we were dying to ourselves daily in all the ways that he calls us to. Oh, and it wouldn't be restriction. It would be flourishing. It wouldn't be disintegration. It would be wholeness. It wouldn't be speculation. It would be stewarding God's great gifts. It would be soundness and life and health is what he's calling us to. Because God didn't just come to take away all the stuff you wish you could do, but you can't because he's going to get upset at you. He came to free you from bondage and death and sin. Sin is not the stuff you wish you could do, but God won't let you. Sin is death. So to die to yourself, what are you really giving up? What are you stopping to do to pursue the wholeness that God calls us into? Okay, verse 16. He says, after this kind of gospel grounding, that we're to live on display these gospel realities in ways that I think give dignity, right? So to, to call to display dignity in the world around us. Look in verse 16. It says, but I receive mercy. This is the reason why I got it. I receive mercy from God for this reason that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I receive this good news in my life, in my body. It changed me. And part of the reason why God wanted to do that was so that I would display to the world around me his perfect patience. Read in their dignity, read in their wholeness, read in their love and care. And I think it shows up multiple ways. One is in your own holiness, to show dignity to the world around you by stopping using people, stop harming people. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this is the will of God for you, that you would live holy lives. And he goes on to talk about not harming those around you. Not using them as commodities for your own pleasure. First Peter chapter 2, there's this beautiful call to God's people to live as aliens and strangers in the world around us. And it's a call towards dying to yourself, a call towards holiness. So dignity starts understanding our need for God and moving towards him in holiness. Not perfection, but in holiness. Which repentance becomes your nearest companion as a as an action step, as something that you exercise regularly, a tool in your tool belt, is to constantly be repenting to realign your heart with the good news of God. He's not saying come be perfect. The law shows us that we couldn't be perfect. He established that earlier. So what we do when we see out-of-step reactions is that we say, God, would you help? Would you forgive? And we repent and we turn. So, so holiness and then honoring people. Hey, we're going to do a class in a couple of uh, for a couple of weeks starting Wednesday night, I would love to have you come there. I want to be really careful because when I stand here in this space, this is a like, as best I can tell, this is what the Lord says from his word. There's a million questions about should you use pronouns for people and what do you do with uh, going to a, a gay wedding and how do you think about people in your life in proximity to you if they come over, how do you respond? How do you share what's inside of you? There's tons of questions there that I don't think you have like one very clear verse on. So I want to hold some of that for that class where we can discuss. And you're like, man, I went in four weeks for you to unsolve that mystery. And I just pushed you off one more time to the Wednesday night. But I really, with all integrity, I want to say, I don't know if the Bible has just one clear answer to those things. You'll hear good, thoughtful scholars that believe the Bible is true, that hold to a kind of a non-affirming posture, that have very strong opinions about what you should or shouldn't do in those spaces. I think we should listen to those and then we should ask for God to help us move forward. But can I just give you like a couple of ideas? Can you make a distinction between people and policies? It would give someone dignity to realize the person in front of you is not a policy. 
They're shaped by policies and ideologies, but the person in front of you who comes out, who asks for your help, who, who wonders if you'll judge them, who wonders what God's word would say, who asks you to treat them in ways they would understand would have dignity, can you treat them as a person and not a policy? I know when it comes to pronouns, the fear on both sides is that you would do harm by dishonoring someone or you would do harm by not telling them the truth. I think you have to wrestle with both of those realities. And there's kind of a verbal hospitality that we can use in public spaces. And I think your proximity to that person makes a big difference on how you relate to them. Your nature of your relationship, if it's a client or somebody at work, I think it's a different category than a roommate or a spouse or a child or a best friend. I think your proximity makes a difference. There are some great resources that will give you some thoughts on how to engage some of that. But let me just say, like, don't violate your conscience, but understand your conscience is shaped by lots of things that you've believed and held on to. And so interacting with people that think differently about these issues kind of help you understand, well, actually, where do you want to land and sit? The Bible is really clear about a lot of things, and then it gives us some freedom to apply those clarity truths in spaces that are a little bit less clear. And it's okay to just say, hey, it kind of depends. And some of you guys like are saying, no way, there's always one black and white. I fully understand where you're coming from. I'm, I'm bent that way as well. And there are some things that are clear black and white, but when you go to apply those clear black and white things in different situations, sometimes those get a little bit fuzzy. Don't violate your conscience. Think about people instead of policies and engage with people with the dignity they deserve as people who are made in the image of God and come to the class and we'll talk about it some more. When it comes to people engaging with you, would you just remember like to not make their pain about you? It's a child, it's a spouse, it's a friend. When they share a struggle with you, that fight or flight response kicks up. It's why I started there with fear. Can you come curiously and compassionately towards them, realizing what they're sharing with you requires dignity. Parents, keep open dialogue with your kids. Let them know no conversation is out of bounds. You may not have good answers, but you want to talk about whatever it is they're facing and dealing with. You will learn. You will grow. You will read. If their primary voices are Instagram or TikTok, you are way behind the curve. Make sure your kid don't just get your eyes when they're in trouble or you have a lecture for them. Build deep relationships with them. And I'm not saying it's because of our family relationships that somebody turns out one sexual orientation or the other. That's way too simplistic, and it's way dehumanizing, actually. It's not just one thing. But one way we show dignity, I'm in that space, is to navigate the pain that somebody feels, even if they're your child, which, again, it would incite all kinds of things inside of you. In lots of different directions. I won't even presuppose which direction it would go for you, but would you help that person by engaging with them compassionately and curiously rather than making it about, about you? When it comes to our church, we have a chance to show the diversity of masculinity and femininity that would actually erode stereotypes that push people into corners and make them say, I don't feel like a stereotypical male. I don't feel like a stereotypical female. We get a chance to display Lots of gifts and lots of expressions and lots of personalities. I love actually even just like a little snapshot of our worship team. How different the personalities are, the people up there. How they embody their masculinity and femininity differently. We have a chance as a church to push against stereotypes and have a fuller human expression than the world often gives us. There's a call to deep hospitality, to welcome people into our lives. And again, this is a 10-year deal. You're going to have to change your schedule how you spend your money, what you do with your time, 
to make margin in your life, to welcome people into your actual home, into your actual table, into your actual life, so that people who wrestle with the, the idea of their future and the Bible saying to them, hey, there's a call to chastity. It's only a marriage between a man and a woman that God would bless and sanction. And spaces outside of that are outside his bounds for flourishing. So they hear that, they take that serious, they die to themselves, and they're faced now with what in their mind is a life of loneliness. Can we be a people that welcome them, that we help that lie not be compelling to them? And actually, I love in our church we have singles in all kinds of ages. I love that we have 60, 70, and 80-year-old singles who've never been married. And we have people that have been widowed for 30 years. And we have people in their 20s and their 30s who aren't married. So we already have an opportunity to engage well in these spaces. And what if the church was actually part of the remedy and the way of escape for someone's temptation because we offered friendship and welcome? People didn't have to be alone when it came to those spaces. So we would be a people that are hospitable. Avoid oversimplifying things. There's so much going on. And even when we think about Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, he names her dysfunction and brokenness, and she wants to make it about worship. These ideas, they shape us. We don't just have ideas. They shape how we form. And so someone's struggles and actions and behavior is rooted down deep inside of things. So resist the temptation to oversimplify. There's a a call in this text to trusting God with what feels really overwhelming. So I want to close here after we've heard the good news of the gospel, displaying the dignity to God's people. Look in verse 17. He just closes in worship, which is fascinating. He's not losing his train of thought. He's letting the logic of what he's saying take him all the way to the space where there's hope. And he rests everything on the bigness of God. He says this, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Of all the questions, of all the places where you struggle, of all the things you're uncertain about, the stuff you're wondering, is God big enough to handle questions about my own sexuality? Is he big enough to sustain me? Is he big enough to help me navigate a changing world? Is he big enough to help me suffer in ways that actually, uh, if I follow him, it's going to cost me relationally and vocationally? To hear that there's a God who, who was invisible, who took on flesh and came into our world, made a way for us to be redeemed and healed. The king of the ages came to you. And he says there will be this forever endeavor. That this world is not our final home. There's an ultimate call towards glory that God is putting us in front of, saying come to trust in God, rest in God with all the big questions you have. The king of the ages is bigger than all of those questions. One day the God of the universe, the immortal, invisible All wise God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And until then, he promises to walk with us in the struggle. He promises that we won't be alone, that his spirit's going to be with us. He promises never leave us or forsake us. And Jesus came into this world to actually show us that it was possible as Jesus took on a body, stepped into our brokenness. The invisible God became visible, lived a sacrificial life in such a way that he died in our place so we could be healed and forgiven. As we move towards communion, can you have the image of like a garden in your mind? What God often calls us to is cultivate something beautiful. Let's avoid the temptation to just like spray all the weeds with Roundup and just kill everything. Instead, we get on our hands and knees and we cultivate one weed at a time, one flower at a time, one, one thing, one person, one issue at a time. It's messy and it's slow and it puts our hands in the dirt. But there's a call to formation 
in the Bible that says it's not a quick fix just to stop the discomfort you have and with one simple decision. God calls us into decades of transformation and change the same way you want to cultivate something beautiful. And Jesus is our example of that. He came into the world to put his hands in the dirt, so to speak, to make it possible for us to actually follow him, be loved by him, and move towards him. And so I want to call us to take communion as a way to cap this series where we end every sermon asking for God's help to actually move towards him in faithfulness. This one who came to solve our biggest need, came to actually fix what was broken about us, came to actually save sinners, did it by laying down his life on your behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. The reason the gospel is not simply some sexual ethic. It's a God who loves you that came to forgive you and save you and heal you and sustain you. So it's a meal to remind us that we need constant nourishment, constant sustenance to kind of keep walking with God in ways that transform and change us. Whether you are actively struggling, you have people in your life that you're wondering how to relate to, you're wondering what do you do with these desires, what if they kept growing or forming, you have regrets in your past, you're thinking about your future, in all those spaces, hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to rescue and to save, to sustain and to nourish you in that spot. So Christians who trust Jesus, I invite you to take communion. We tear a piece of the bread off and we dip in the cup. There's stations here at all four aisles. There'll be a gluten-free station here in the middle. And it's for anybody who trusts Christ, wherever you are in that space, if you're trusting Jesus for your righteousness, then the communion table is open for you. And if you're not trusting Jesus, I'm so thankful you're here. This message is the Christian message. So you have a chance just to pray and ask for God to speak to you. Ask him to help you understand it if it's real, to believe it if it's actually something that you could put your hope in. So there's prayers in the back of your bulletin that will give you some examples if you're not a follower of Jesus, but just stay in your seat and pray. And those who are trusting Christ, come and take communion. Let me pray for us, and then we'll celebrate. Jesus, thank you for all that you did to redeem everything about us. Thanks for the ways you promised to sustain us. Would you nourish your people now? There's so many questions we have, so many open-ended things we're not sure about. Would you help us in this space actually trust you, your broken body and your shed blood, to be enough for us? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready.